We are in Luke chapter 4 today as we continue to look at the gospel. And so I'm going to pray to ask God's blessing upon our time in His Word. And thank you for your songs. And thank you, Jan. You know, that does take a lot of skill just to turn to a hymn and play it. So, thank you. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Lord, now as we come to your Word, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, convict us. I pray, Lord, that we would obey. And I pray, Lord, that this time in your Word would be like a time... Seated at your feet, listening to you teach to us. And I pray, Jesus, in your name, amen. We have talked about how John the Baptist was the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus to come. You've probably never thought of it in this way, that Jesus needed time to be prepared himself before he came to the public. But in a sense, in the Gospels, that's what we see. We see a time where Jesus has not yet come to the public, yet he comes to prepare so that when he does, he is ready to begin his ministry. And so it begins in Luke 4 with Jesus' baptism. In Luke 4, 21 and 22, Luke writes, When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So John had been baptizing. And people had been coming. Remember, they came because John was preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus came to John, and the first question that comes to my mind is, why is Jesus coming to John? There's nothing that Jesus needs to repent of. There's no sin that he has committed. He doesn't have to prepare his heart for the Messiah. He is the Messiah. So why would Jesus come to John and be baptized? I think there are several reasons why Jesus came to John and was baptized. One, he came to identify with the sinners who were being baptized. All those who came to John were admitting their sin and repenting of it and were coming to prepare. And so Jesus comes to come alongside and identify with sinners. Of course, Jesus is... Not a sinner. He never did sin. He's perfect because he's God. But isn't it true that in coming to earth, as a human, he identified with us. And as he died on the cross for us, he took our place. A perfect human dying for sinful humans. In that sense, his whole purpose was to identify with us. In fact, Hebrews says that he even calls us brothers. So in coming to John, he identified with sinners who had been coming to John. Also, John had been preaching and teaching. I'm sure some of people thought he was crazy, thought he didn't know what he was talking about. But when the Messiah came, and in a sense was part of John's ministry, that gave authenticity to what John was saying 
And it showed that, yes, John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the Elijah to come. And Jesus showed that to the people and the religious leaders that he, John, is the one who was to prepare you for my coming. This was the first time that he, in a sense, was publicly as Messiah in front of everyone. As you know, you read the Gospels in Matthew and Luke, there is uh, the stories of how Jesus was born. In uh, the Gospel of Mark, there's no birth narratives. In the Gospel of John, we go farther back in time into eternity past when we hear about the Word and how Jesus became flesh. And except for the Gospel of Luke, where there is a story of Jesus when he was 12 years old in the temple, we have no biblical accounts of how Jesus grew up, what he did as a 10-year-old, what he was like as a teenager, what he did as a young adult in his 20s. Luke tells us he was about 30 years old at this time of his baptism, of his appearance to the nation. And so for about 30 years, all we know is when he was born, when the wise men came, his family was in the temple, three accounts of Jesus' life in almost 30 years of his life. Why that is, I don't know. I don't know why the Lord has not revealed that to us. I think maybe the simple answer is Jesus as the Messiah, his message, his power, his death, his resurrection, that is what we need to know about Jesus. The other things we don't need to know. That's why God hasn't revealed it to us. But this is sort of the kickoff, if you want to say, of his ministry. He comes to John and he appears to the public. This is the most intriguing part of the baptism, is that here is Jesus, God the Son, standing next to John, being immersed into the water. And then there is God the Holy Spirit, who appears in a physical form, but not as a man, as a dove. Here in Luke's account, this is a literal-looking dove. I mean, it has feathers and a beak and everything, okay? This is a dove that descends, but it's not just a dove or not a dove. It is God, the Holy Spirit. And then there is God, the Father, speaking from heaven, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Isn't that intriguing? A voice, God, the Father, A a human God-man, the Son, there in the water. God, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons in one, there at this one moment in time. It would take us weeks just to wrap our minds around it, try to unravel it, try to figure it out, try to understand it. And so we're not going to do that. Our time is limited. But I encourage you to try to think about that and what it means. One thing it means to me is that as we learn from Scripture, from different verses, uh, there is only one God but in three persons. 
And right here is an example. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're three different things. A voice, a dove, a man. But only one God. And the significance is, as we have talked about many times in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit indwelt people for a purpose for a time. In the New Testament, we as Christians were promised that we receive the Holy Spirit when we are saved. And of course, God, Jesus, didn't need the Holy Spirit to come upon him because he wasn't God before then. But this shows symbolically as it was for those in the Old Testament, it is for us that God, the Holy Spirit, is there for ministry, for action. And so that's why the dove descends, symbolically showing it's time for God the Son to now act and to act on behalf of God. And the voice from heaven, a stamp of approval, so to speak, that now it's time for the Son to act, to speak, to begin His mission, the purpose for which He came. Two simple questions when we look at these verses. Have you been baptized? I mean, as I look, I assume most would answer yes. But I always ask this question when we talk about baptism for, as I said earlier, we talked about John, his baptism is different from Christian baptism, but as an example of baptism, and we as Christians are commanded to be baptized. In a sense, it's the first act of obedience after our salvation. To identify with Christ, to publicly announce that we are Christians and have been saved, and to be obedient to the Lord. In the New Testament, there's an assumption that if you are a Christian, you have been baptized. There's no classification of people who have been saved, but they haven't been baptized yet. Although in United States Christianity, there are a lot of those people. So that's why I asked the question, have you been baptized? And I think about this, there was the voice from heaven, the Father, saying that he was well pleased with the Son. I just asked you to imagine if God today spoke from heaven about you, what would he say? Okay. I know there'd be words of love, comfort, compassion, because that's who God is, but there might be also some words of warning, of judgment. Think about that. And in fact, you don't have to wait for a voice from heaven, for God speaks to us if we will listen every day. As we read his word, as we pray, he speaks. If we will listen, we will know what he thinks of us and where we need to change so that we can hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant, as we all hope to hear when we meet him face to face. In the Gospel of Luke, what's written next is a lot of names. And I'm not going to read those names to you. And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I do want to say this about Matthew and Luke. They both have a genealogy of Jesus. If you look in the book of Matthew, it has a genealogy that begins with Abraham and ends with Joseph, I guess then Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, the um, 
Genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, even past farther than Abraham. If you look at the two lists, they have different names, although they both indicate that they're genealogies of Joseph. So, that has created a question. Why are they different? Are they both Joseph's genealogy? If they are, why are they so different? Again, we're not going to get into all the details. We could spend all day talking about that. What I do want to say is this. An answer to that question is that, remember, Joseph, and even Luke tells us this, was not Jesus' father. Luke says that Joseph was the... He was thought to be the father of Jesus, but he wasn't. He's the son of God. Jesus is God. He did not have an earthly father. He did have an earthly mother, Mary. And so one answer to this question that has been used before, not the only answer, but the one I'll share with you this morning, is that in a real sense, Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father, And as such, Jesus had a legal right to the throne of David because Joseph was a descendant of David. Also, obviously David had many sons, many different lines of his family, besides the direct royal line in which Joseph was in. And so it's speculated that Luke's genealogy tells us the line of Mary and that she also was related to King David through a different son in a different line. And if that is the correct answer to this conundrum, then Jesus is legally the king of David, uh, the, the king of the Jews through the royal line of David, through Joseph, and also his bloodline. He is a descendant of David through his blood mother, Mary. The real reason I think Matthew and Luke give us a genealogy to show us a couple things. One, Jesus was a real person, uh, born just like all of us are, with an ancestry, with a family. Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And Luke wants to show us that Jesus is, like all of us, a descendant of Adam. He is a human, a man, a son of Adam, like us. That's an important part for us to know as well. As we'll see in a moment, as we come to the next thing that Luke tells us about, and that is Jesus going into the desert for 40 days, where he is tempted by Satan. Luke tells us, Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Before we look at the different temptations, let's just think a moment where Jesus is and what is happening. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years because they disobeyed God, and they had no faith that God was with them. Moses, when he received the law, was on the Mount of Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights where he didn't eat, but he was there with God. Elijah also had a time of testing 
for 40 days. You see, there's a pattern of prophets, even of the nation of Israel, before they, in a sense, begin their purpose, there's a time of preparation, a time of testing. The nation of Israel failed. That's why they were wandering around. But in Jesus' testing, he's victorious. Where Israel failed, Jesus reigned. Let's look at these three temptations. The first one is to turn stones into bread for Jesus to not eat for 40 days or 40 nights. I don't know how many of you have ever fasted for any amount of time. I remember, I won't say who this was in human history, but anyway, there was this guy, he said he was going to fast, hunger, strike. He started out at breakfast, by lunchtime he was eating. You know, he skipped breakfast. You know, fasting can be difficult. Trying to not eat for one meal is pretty easy. Not eating for a day is not actually all that hard. But if you go two, three, four days, I don't know if you've ever done that. The longest I've ever fasted is four days. And at least for me, that was very, very difficult even by day three. Because all you think about is food. And uh, you're not eating. And so you're weak. And you're thinking about food. And... It's not very pleasant, so I don't know why people do it. (laughs) But then you hear other people talk about it, and they say, oh, you know, they got to this new level where they weren't even thinking about food, and they were, their mind was focused, and I don't know, that's just not me. I get irritable, I get uh, moody, I get angry, I guess it's uh, hangry because you're hungry, I don't know. So it doesn't work for me. I'm just giving you this example of how difficult it is. And so if you've ever tried it, You know that. If you've never tried it, it's harder than you can imagine if you've never fasted because you're used to eating food. All that to say, Jesus for 40 days has not eaten any food. And so the temptation then to turn some stones into bread would be a great one. Satan comes to him and wants him to turn stones into bread. Jesus, obviously, is God. He has the power to do that. You and I couldn't do that. I know if we were in the desert, we would not be tempted to turn stone into bread. We can't do it. But Jesus could. He's God. All it would take would be a command to the bread. Jesus created the universe with his words. He certainly could change stones into bread without any problem. But what Satan was tempting Jesus to do was more than about food. He was tempting him to do something outside of the Father's will. You will notice throughout the New Testament as Jesus does miracles, every miracle he does, it's because the Father has told him to. Everything that Jesus says and he does is in accordance with the Father's will. And here Satan is telling him to do something without the Father's permission, or doing something outside of the will of God. That is why it's such a significant temptation, not just because it's turning stones into bread. This is what Jesus said to Satan. Jesus answered him, It is written, man must not live on bread alone. 
It sounds kind of simple, but this is a, a truth. Our life is not just about eating and about possessions. It's about our relationship with God. And in fact, that's why a lot of people, when they fast, that's why they're fasting, to be closer to God. It's a very physical way to acknowledge that truth, that our lives is more than living to eat. Our life is about God, and that relationship with God is fed by reading the Word of God. Satan then tempts Jesus to worship him. Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and says to Jesus, I will give you these if all you will do is worship me. You may wonder why Satan has the kingdoms of the world to give to Jesus. He is called the ruler of this world. I think this was a legitimate offer. It also may seem strange since Jesus created the universe. Everything is his. But again, beyond the fact that there's kingdoms and there is an offer... What is important to know is this, that Jesus is going to be exalted. And we know that in the future, every knee, every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But that exaltation wasn't to come until there was a sacrifice. Until there was a proclamation from Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Until there was a death on the cross, there was to be Suffering, separation, sacrifice before the glory. And Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut. Oh, don't do all that stuff. (laughs) Just take them now. All you've got to do is worship me. So it's a temptation to a shortcut outside of the will of God that if Jesus took, of course, we'd all be dead in our sins and going to hell. And on top of that, it would be worshiping Satan. And so Jesus says to him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Finally, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple. And now Jesus starts, excuse me, Satan starts quoting scripture now. Okay, And he says, the scripture says, if, if you stumble, if you fall, the angels will come and protect you. So Jesus, just jump off of here. I want to see a show. Show off for me. Jump off of here and let's see the angels come and save you. And Jesus is now being tempted to test God. That was, in a sense, a promise. But like the Israelites tested God in the desert, it was sin. If we test God, it's a sin. We are to humbly walk before God and follow His will and follow His path and not presume, not test. And so Jesus says to Satan, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And then Satan left him, but just for a time. We are not given the recordings of how Satan tempted him. But this was not one and done. Satan came from a time and then came and continually tempted Jesus. Jesus passed the test. He has 
been baptized. His genealogy proves that He's the Messiah. And He has shown that He is perfect and sinless and ready to go and tell the people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we close, I want us to think about this, and I don't have to elaborate. Satan still tempts today. And we don't always know the source of our temptation. I don't believe, I, I believe Satan is limited. He's not God. He's not everywhere. God's, uh, Satan's a being, so he can only be in one place at one time. God is everywhere all at once, but not Satan. So I assume that Satan himself is tempting people bigger than I am, and bigger than you are. But he does have demons who also tempt. We also have ourself. We're pretty good at tempting our own selves to sin, okay? So between Satan, between demons, between our sinful nature, there's plenty of places where temptation comes. I think it's irrelevant. We don't need to try to figure out where the temptation comes from. We just know when it happens. And all of us know that feeling where you, for a moment, have a choice to make. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. And you are going to make a choice. And all of us have known the feeling of making the right choice and making the wrong choice. And I just want to quickly tell you this wonderful truth as we see some of the ways that Satan tempts us. Again, I don't have to elaborate. You know, okay? Let's talk about the good news that Jesus knows. The writer of Hebrews says this, For since he himself was has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. I want you to know this. Every time you are tempted, Jesus also was tempted, so he knows what it's like. Never feel like this is something new. No one knows. Jesus knows. Of course, he wasn't tempted in every way in the sense of, you know, he was never tempted to speed. He didn't have a car, okay? But he was tempted to disobey the law. So, you know, in the broad categories that we are tempted in, Jesus was tempted. And he knows what it's like. But more than knowing what it's like, he can help us. The writer of Hebrews also says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So you hear what he says there? Jesus understands because he was there. But not only that, Jesus didn't give in to temptation. He was victorious over temptation. So he knows how to be victorious, and he is there to help us. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The writer of Hebrews is telling us this. When we are tempted, we always have Jesus with us who's been there, but more than has been there, he was victorious, and he's there to help. So what the writer says is simply do this. Cry out to God and do so boldly. Say, God, I need help. And Jesus is there to help. 
It, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? When we're tempted, we turn it into something that's a battle. And I'm not saying it's not. But the solution to the battle is very simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but the solution is simple. God is with us, and he's there to help. And all he's waiting for is us to ask him to help. And he's there. Again, notice that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And there's always a way out. I don't think we realize that when we're in the midst of temptation. But this promise is clear in 1 Corinthians that Paul tells us. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Do you really hear what Paul is saying? He's saying every time you're tempted, it's happened before, okay? Really, Satan doesn't have a lot of temptations. They're very basic, they're very simple, but they work beautifully. He doesn't need a whole lot of complicated things. And so he can tempt us and we will sin. But every time we're tempted, even though Paul is saying it's not unique, it's not just for you, it's happened to humanity for centuries. But this is the important thing that is personal to us, that Jesus never ever allows us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And he always provides a way out. Those are two important truths because that means there's never a temptation that if we allow, it's always our choice is what he's saying. Because the temptation is never too big that we cannot say no. And we don't even have to say no by ourselves. Jesus is there to help us and he's there to give us strength and he's there to show us the way out of it. That, That is a ironclad promise. This tells me that every time we sin, it's always a choice that we make willfully. And every time we make that choice, we are saying no to God's help. We're saying no to the way out. And we can never say, the devil made me do it. We can never say the temptation was too strong. Those are lies. It's always, when we sin, our choice to disobey God and ignore the help that he has provided. The positive is, every temptation, every one, we can overcome. If we ask for God's help and we follow him in the way out. One last thought. Jesus was tempted, attacked by Satan. And I've always been struck by this. Jesus didn't attack back with, uh, you know, with fire and brimstone or with angels. He, he didn't pray, I'm going to bind you, Satan. I'm going to beat you up, Satan. He didn't do any of that. I'm mindful that even with some of our Christian friends who always, it seems to me, are praying and battling Satan by binding him and telling him to leave and and doing all of this. You know, we've got to, wherever Satan is, we've got to find him, we've got to bind him, we've got to beat him up or whatever. That terminology is never in the scripture. Jesus defeated Satan 
with something very simple that all of us have access to. It was the Word of God. That was His only weapon. I think it proves to us that we can also be victorious over Satan. We have Jesus right there. He's going to help us. And we have the Word of God. That's all we need. That's all Jesus had. That's all He used. So leave here today with encouragement. As mighty and powerful as Satan is, our God is more powerful. And He's always there to help us. And He's given us the weapons. We can have victory over the sin in our life. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the victory we have in you. Jesus, I'm thankful for your example of how you defeated Satan, how he fled from you by the simple words of Scripture. My prayer is this this morning, Lord, that we would hate sin as much as you do, God. And when we are tempted to do it, that we would hear these truths of your word. And that we would choose to obey you and live in righteousness. I pray that that would be true as we go into this week. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.